Hello my friends and welcome back to the Meerkat Musings podcast. I'm your host Ben, aka Darth Moan, with some thoughts and feelings on the brand new Legend of Zelda game, Tears of the Kingdom. I've played it now for two weeks and I will offer up my, my personal thoughts and feelings on the game, on the story, on everything thus far and I want to stress that I am not finished not by a long way from what I can gather. So I'll be recapping what I am aware of. He goes about saying there will be a considerable number of spoilers as I talk about this game. And for those of you who perhaps haven't played it but wish to, there will also be some spoilers for Breath of the Wild as well. So if your intentions are to go back and play that game, please bear in mind that in the course of talking about Tears of the Kingdom, it's almost impossible for me not to refer to Breath of the Wild. And with that in mind, and as said, there will be spoilers abound, so bear that in mind, I'm going to start this podcast in earnest now. So, Tears of the Kingdom. It's the follow-up, of course, to the absolute smash hit, Breath of the Wild. Breath of the Wild launched with the Switch back in March, uh, the 3rd of March, in fact, 2017. So we have waited six years for a sequel. Technically speaking, you could argue we've waited four years because the first announcement about a sequel came in 2019 and of course with that in mind we then had delays because of the covid pandemic which slowed everything down and we also had to bear in mind that one of the things nintendo will be is very meticulous with games like this they will perfect it before they release it one of the things nintendo do very very well is they don't tend to release buggy games riddled with errors and issues they wait until the product is perfect until it's finally polished before they release it and what a finely polished product tears of the kingdom is once upon a time i regarded breath of the wild as being the best legend of zelda game and then after reflecting upon that declaration a bit I decided that, in fact, my favourite Zelda game was still A Link to the Past on the Super Nintendo. But that being said, Breath of the Wild was was a glorious new, complete revision of what Zelda had been for many, many years. Without going too much into the history of the Zelda franchise, and if you're a Zelda fan listening to this, you don't need to be told this, A number of Zelda games moved into a very linear direction uh, over the years. And basically what that meant was every person playing a Zelda game would inevitably have to do exactly the same things in order to complete the game. Which was uh, a a big departure really from the original Zelda game. The original Zelda game in 1986 was an open world adventure that where you could largely do what you wanted. Largely. There were a few things you had to do. There were a few things you had to do in Breath of the Wild. 
and there are a few things you have to do in Tears of the Kingdom. But beyond a few points like that, you can pretty much do what you want, when you want, in this vast open world. One of the things that Nintendo have done, and done in spectacular fashion, is to both massively expand the world they built in Breath of the Wild, but not in the way you think, by the way, and I'll explain that in a second. And they've also redesigned and reshaped the land of Hyrule from Breath of the Wild in a way that retains a lot of the original features, but retooled enough to feel brand new again. I don't know how they pulled that off, because it would be very easy to, to slip into a place of comfort where everything is very familiar, but and yet they've managed to make it feel feel new again. And that's really quite miraculous in many ways. And as I say, I don't know how Nintendo have managed that. But it's fair to say that Tears of the Kingdom feels like a whole new experience. And returning to this world has been an epic adventure beyond quite frankly anything I could have imagined. It's breathtakingly beautiful, especially the sequences where you take Link from the sky and you you drop, essentially, you fall to the surface with a glider, I hasten to add, which you have to earn in the in the early stage of the game, which is kind of like Breath of the Wild's Great Plateau. It's like a tutorial that's built into the game for you to uh to learn the ropes once again. And you kind of, as with Breath of the Wild, you have to hit the ground running as well because there's no, beyond that experience at the start, there's no tutorial, there's no easily available map of everything. You have to unlock the map yourself once again through the use of the sky towers and piece together what's caused this, this upheaval in Hyrule. It's just, it's just wow. I mean, as I say, it, there's so much to do. I'm, I'm, I'm rambling off here because I'm still trying to get in myself. Where to begin with story and plot? So, and once again, spoilers. Sometime after the events of the calamity in Breath of the Wild. Link and Zelda journey down into the catacombs underneath Hyrule Castle. They are researching the, who are believed to be the ancient precursors to the Hillians, uh, a, a group of beings known as Zonai. Now, I'm not sure from the top of my head if Zonai have featured in Zelda lore before. Maybe they did. I honestly can't remember. I mean, the, the Zelda history is so complicated and there were so many different things going on that keeping track of it was quite hard. But you venture through the catacombs and eventually you come across a mysterious figure that is pinned to the ground by a glowing magic hand, as you do. But this, this creature then gets revived and to me based upon the events that are referred to and the events which get referred to subsequently in the game and 
also at, at various points his general appearance on a lot leads me to believe as do other hints that this game is referencing and mm-hmm. perhaps even is building itself to be a sequel to Skyward Sword because there were references to the Demon King the Demon King being in Zelda lore demise from Skyward Sword and those events and the Demon King and all of that is chronologically within the Zelda timeline they're regarded as being the very first events to take place Skyward Sword is the first game in the timeline and there are references in that game to events to events preceding that game which include the imprisoning war and the Demon King who is Demise you may be thinking who's Demise you've not played Skyward Sword he is I guess you might describe him as Ganon's original form a demon who wanted the power of the gods he was very very powerful he wanted the Triforce and he came very close to taking it and in the end he was I guess you could say he was bound to the destinies of Link and Zelda and it is well he himself said at the end of that game that his essence or essence of him would forever haunt Link and Zelda's descendants and of course as we know Ganon is a recurring enemy effectively demise is Ganon or you could say Demise is Ganon in its absolute purest form so I wonder if there's a connection there however there are references to Ganondorf and you even see Ganondorf in cutscenes in events from from the past and time is an important factor here the events at the start of the game send Zelda effectively back in time to the moment of the imprisoning war and she has to try and get back to Link the events at the start of the game also see you or see Link I should say lose all of his health and energy at the end of Breath of the Wild if you've played it all the way through done all the missions and all the shrines you'll have a pretty buffed up powerful Link he'll have great equipment he'll have a full set of hearts uh, a powerful Salomon wheel, all that kind of stuff. And you start to use the kingdom like that, which is unusual, only for it all to be taken away by the Demon King. And then you end up with a new hand, because Demon King's corruption somewhat messes up one of Link's arms. And you gain a number of powers and abilities. And these powers and abilities are very similar to the ones afforded to Link by the Shaker Slate in Breath of the Wild. You have something vaguely similar to the Magnesis power, although not exactly the same, and not referred to as the same thing, of course. You have a power to fuse objects, which is uh, at times quite useful. You can fuse things together, you can fuse weapons together, which makes life interesting. And you also have the means to ascend through solid objects. Well, you can send through solid objects to a point, but it depends on whether or not there is something above it, a roof or something, uh, or a surface that Link can appear in. If not, you can't use the power. There's also the power to reverse time 
in a, in a limited fashion. You can reverse the flow of time with any given object. So if an enemy throws a rock at you, you can reverse time and send that rock back to the enemy. Some of these powers, I'll be honest, feel a little bit gimmicky to me. There's lots of clips and videos in the trailers and by now also from various people playing the game who've made a number of objects using the, uh, the Ultra Hand, as they call it, to bind things together. I haven't really bothered with that, to be honest, unless I've felt a need to for getting me from A to B. I've, I've broadly speaking, left that alone. I haven't really found huge benefits to, to that side of things. The Ascension power has certainly come in handy. You need to use the powers in the shrines, uh, or at least the, for the most part you do. So, you know, you've got all of that going on, but I'm not, as I say, totally sold on some of these new arrangements. Then again, when I reflect upon it, were those powers always that useful in Breath of the Wild? Perhaps not, to a degree. Certainly sometimes there were, and, you know, sometimes they have been fairly useful in, in this game. I just wonder if if Nintendo are trying a bit too hard with some of those things. There's a lot of new enemies to be had in Tears of the Kingdom. There are kind of new, larger Bokoblins. They're kind of in between a regular Bokoblin and one of those giant Hinox things in terms of size. And they act as like a leader, I guess. They, they, they walk around and they have a troop of Bokoblins following them. And they kind of marshal the Bokoblins in any given direction. Bokoblins have built uh, towers and guard posts on top of stone taluses, which manifests itself in some surprising ways sometimes as well. I stumbled across that in one particular section of the map, which I did not expect to find. You have the the usual staples, of course, with them. You know, as I say, you've got Bokoblins, you've got the bat-like keys creatures, uh, you've got the 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 kind of blob-like uh, choo-choos, which by and large, to be fair, them are harmless, but they can be annoying. Uh, you've got those sort of regular things, and then you've got some new enemies like three-headed Hydra creatures, which I so far have given a wide berth to. You have something called a Horroblin, which is a a cave-dwelling creature that, depending on their exact nature, which usually is dependent upon colour, they'll hang from the ceiling to attack you, or they might jump down to the surface to change you. But they don't tend to leave their caves, however. You also have the return of an enemy called the Like-Like, which has appeared in a few older games down the years. And what they tend to do in older games is suck you in to steal your, your rupees and equipment and things like that. In this game, they're huge worm-like creatures, and they've got a vibe of the sandworms from June a little bit with these things. Maybe not quite to the same extent. But that's certainly where my mind went. I don't like them. They give me the creeps. Uh, they are, by and large, harmless because they're actually static. They're stuck to the wall for the most part. They can't come after you. But they can, in some cases, spit things at you like fireballs or electric balls and that kind of thing. But if you give them a wide berth, they're harmless. And that's true for most of the enemies in Breath of the Wild. But you will, of course, on occasion, have to confront enemies. You have to do some fighting to get from A to B. And one of the moments which really got me was where you might find some of these enemies. But I need to double back to that because that links into something else about this new epic world of Tears of the Kingdom. 
The trailers revealed a series of islands in the sky. The extent of which, uh, it was, there's a lot up there, to be fair, and I'm sure there is a fairly big margin of significance with all of that. But I'm also pretty sure there is a lot more to see up there than I've found so far. However, that is far from the key thing going on here with Tears of the Kingdom. You see, alongside a vast network of caves to be found, and within these caves you can find various goodies, there is actually a whole new level to the game, one that Nintendo kept pretty damn quiet, and it's one which is, needless to say, very, very impressive. You see, what they've gone and done is they have gone and introduced a new underground level, which, as near as I can tell, stretches for the entire map. So in, a, in, a, in a sense, then, what they've done is they have doubled the playable area, it, but they've done it kind of, kind of vertically rather than rather than expanding the world horizontally or or anything like that so not only do we have new areas to explore up above in the sky but we have a retooled hyrule to explore on the surface and an underground depth to explore as well all of which of course adds up to an incredible experience underground in the depths you will find for lack of a better word, corrupted versions of established enemies. The thing about the depths is you access it through giant chasms, and these chasms appeared during the Great Upheaval, which is what, among other things, launched Hyrule Castle into the sky, surrounded by what is referred to as gloom, which is this kind of pinkish-purple substance which in some cases it's kind of wafting around in the air a little bit. In other cases, it just coats the ground. Gloom has a nasty effect upon anyone who touches it. If you touch it, it will, it will uh, kind of not only drain Link's health, but it also prevents Link's health from being fully restored. The way to deal with that is to find sunlight or to get back into sunlight, which thankfully you can do via means of the shrine's travel function which is back and it's very handy because you find a shrine you haven't even got to beat the shrine to activate the travel function and you can use that of course to get from a to b and another interesting feature these new shrines have roots which stretch down into the depths and if you go to the roots and you activate a panel there you can actually relieve some of the gloom well you can't relieve the gloom as such but you can remove the, the darkness from the area and provide it with light, which of course makes it a lot easier to know where you're going, but it also tends to fill in your map of the depths as well. And all of that, of course, is very, very handy if you want to know where you're going. The relationship between sky, surface and depths is one that I am still unravelling, but inevitably it forms, well, I believe it forms an important backbone of what's going on. And I think completely unravelling that is the key to knowing the whole story. Although I believe through the process of finding the tears, and this of course is where Tears of the Kingdom comes in, 
I believe through doing that that I have unlocked a significant portion of the story. I dare say there's probably still details that I don't have a need to know, but I believe I know what's going on. And we'll see if I'm right, we'll see if I'm wrong, either way it's going to be interesting. A quick word before I wrap things up on the Master Sword. At the beginning of the game you've got the Master Sword, which is great, right? It's a weapon that banishes darkness, it's very, very powerful in Zelda lore. However, it's actually shattered into many, many pieces by the Demon King. Which is a bit shocking, of course, because you assume this weapon is indestructible. However, the sword, along with Zelda, ends up back in time. And it then gradually regenerates. And you can find it again, but you don't find it where you expect to find it. You don't find it in the same place as Breath of the Wild. And the mechanism for getting it has changed as well. And I'm not going to give away everything about that, except to say that you know, your expectations will be subverted, as they will with a number of other things going on with Tears of the Kingdom. It is, in many respects, very similar to Breath of the Wild, but don't make the mistake of thinking it is Breath of the Wild. It's not. It's its own game, it's got its own personality, and it is absolutely brilliant. I know I said earlier on this video that, that Breath of the Wild briefly overtook A Link to the Past for me as being my favourite Zelda game. Now I'm sort of wondering if Tears of the Kingdom might be the one to finally topple that 30-year-old legend. Who knows? If you get the chance to play Tears of the Kingdom, by all means do so. If you get the chance to play Breath of the Wild first, if you've not played that yet, it's definitely worth a go. And just go out there and explore. Just, just see what you can uncover and turn up. It's definitely worthwhile.